Center for the Humanities, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon to hear Lydia Davis read as part of our Distinguished Writer Series, a series that brings writers from all over the world into our living room for a cozy afternoon of reading and writing and talking about both. Um, some of you may remember that we tried to bring um, Lydia Davis here in February of last year, but weather got in the way. <laughs> So I'm glad that today we just had a little bit of rain instead of major blizzard, um, and even that seems to be clearing up. Um, today's reading marks the opening of our fifth season of the Distinguished Writer series, and I can't think of a, a better writer to kick off the series than, than Lydia Davis. If you're not already on our uh, mailing list and like to be so, we have cards available you can fill out for us in the other room. The host for this afternoon's reading is Dan Chasen, who's a member of the English department here at Wellesley College. Dan is a celebrated writer and critic of poetry. He's published three books of poetry, the most recent of which is called Where's the Moon, There's the Moon. With his critic's hat on, Dan's the author of a book on American poetry called One Kind of Everything, Poem and Person in Contemporary America. He serves as the poetry critic for The New Yorker, The New York Times Book Review, and The Paris Review. He's the recipient of the Whiting Writers Award and also a Guggenheim Fellowship for Poetry in 2008. Last year, Dan was asked to read something for a local series that profiles the books that Wellesley faculty are reading, and Dan chose to read from the selected short stories of Lydia Davis because, as he said, he had fallen in love with the stories and had lived inside of them. So I was delighted that Dan agreed to host our reading today and look forward to his conversation with Lydia Davis after the reading. I'll hand things over to Dan to introduce Lydia Davis. For those of you not familiar with our format, Ms. Davis will read for a little bit, then she and Dan will chat for a little bit up here in the comfy red chairs, and then after that we'll open up the conversation to you, and at the end we have Ms. Davis' books available for sale and for, uh, for her to sign. So thank you for coming out on this slightly rainy afternoon and I'll hand things over to Dan. Thanks. Let's see, I have that and this. Does that sound okay? Okay. Um, it's a pleasure for me to welcome Lydia Davis to Wellesley, um, and my thanks to Carol for inviting me to introduce her and to the snowstorm, because I wasn't going to be able to be here last February. Um, so the gods were on my side. A few years ago, coming late to Lydia Davis, as I come late to all authors, I decided that she was my favorite living fiction writer. Since I preferred to read her work over that of most poets, owing not to her difference from the poets I loved, but from her superiority to them on the same turf, I might as well have said favorite writer, period. I want to give a few reasons why. One. Her work is a marvel of modeled scrutiny and its limitations, sublimely about the human bind of needing badly to figure unknowable things out. By things, I don't mean the meaning of life, though big metaphysical questions are refreshed in this painstaking and precise work. I mean more like practical problems of the heart. If you get a letter from a vanished ex-lover, with no return address, what kinds of clues do you look for? Do you smell it? The answer is, you do. <laughs> Two, her work acknowledges everywhere 
the possibility of boredom, that we might grow bored of it, that it might grow bored of us, that boredom is relative, that boredom is a luxury. Needless to say, any style that takes boredom so seriously almost never permits itself to be boring, except where absolutely necessary. Three, her work demolishes the false distinction between doing things with books, reading them, writing them, translating them, and real life. It's surprising to me how many writers for whom writing simply has to be the richest and most fundamental human activity still think of writing as subservient to other activities, like, I don't know, going on safari. Four, her concern with grammar, syntax, spelling, and so on, as absolutely humanly revealing, and as potential grounds for conflict or for poignancy. One quick example, her story, Nietzsche, misspelled, the S and the Z reversed in its entirety. Poor dad, I made fun of you. Now I'm spelling Nietzsche wrong, too. Like so much of what she does, this is funny and devastating all at once. Five, her work's brilliant tracking of various non-literary or even anti-literary conditions that bear on pieces of writing. I will give a single example, her story, Collaboration with Fly, again, in its entirety. I put that word on the page, but he added the apostrophe. She has a recent story about an ungrammatical sentence found in a trash can, this sort of thing. Six, it's abundance. This is a very big book of very short stories. The shortness of much of her fiction belies its abundance. What she cuts out was waste. The ratio of interesting things to boring things in every sentence is absurdly high. Her thrift also, in a different way, dramatizes her abundance. So many stories, so many new characters and situations and turns of mind. A quick scan of her tables of contents gives a sense of the madcap variety we encounter in her work. Here are the titles of several consecutive stories. Blind Date, Example of Remember... Old Mother and the Grouch, Samuel Johnson is Indignant, New Year's Resolution, First Grade Handwriting Practice, Skipping Down a Bit, Letter to a Funeral Parlor, Thyroid Diary. A few years ago when I wrote something about her, Lydia and I had a nice correspondence about, among other things, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Preferring New England to all other places, another way of saying preferring things I know to things I don't, I like to think of Lydia Davis as an heir not just to Kafka and Robert Walser and Bruno Schultz, as everyone always says, though plainly she belongs in their company, but also to Hawthorne, sketching his tales in the American notebooks, leaving things in his stories, haunting, striking, unexplicated because inexplicable. Davis, in addition to being a writer of fiction, is an esteemed translator of Flaubert and Proust and other French writers, finalist for the National Book Award, and a winner of many awards, notably the MacArthur Genius Grant of a half a million bucks, whose 2011 winners were announced today, 
making all but a few writers feel, as they do on this day every year, like complete failures at everything they have ever attempted, as well as putting a sudden end to their interest in online real estate. Please welcome Lydia Davis. So I'm going to read for about 20 minutes. I guess the sound is pretty good so far, yeah. Um, I'm just going to read one from the book, uh, and the rest will be uh, relatively new stories. At least they're uncollected into other books. Um, And I don't know why I'm fond of reading the first one, but... I have a soft spot for it. You know, you don't necessarily like all your work. But this is called Jane and the Cane. And I think for several reasons I have a soft spot for it. I think it reminds me of the early readers. You know, know, when I was little, the first, first year, the first level of reading, reading books where um, the words were very simple and clear and the pages were very clear, and you know, um, Bob, Bob has a ball. Jane has a ball, and then then people began, educators began thinking that this is boring, but it wasn't boring because it was so exciting to learn to read that you know you really didn't need a an exciting plot. So, I think somehow this was born from that. It's called Jane and the Cane. Mother could not find her cane. She had a cane, but she could not find her special cane. Her special cane had a handle that was the head of a dog. Then she remembered, Jane had her cane. Jane had come to visit. Jane had needed a cane to get back home. That was two years ago. Mother called Jane. She told Jane she needed her cane. Jane came with a cane. When Jane came, mother was tired. She was in bed. She did not look at the cane. Jane went back home. Mother got out of bed. She looked at the cane. She saw that it was not the same cane. It was a plain cane. She called Jane and told her it was not the same cane. But Jane was tired. She was too tired to talk. She was going to bed. The next morning, she came with the cane. Mother got out of bed. She looked at the cane. It was the right cane. It had the head of a dog on it, brown and white. Jane went home with the other cane, the plain cane. After Jane was gone, Mother complained. She complained on the phone. Why did Jane not bring back the cane? Why did Jane bring the wrong cane? Mother was tired. Oh, mother was so tired of Jane and the cane. I'm afraid that was a true story. I'm going to read just uh, four little little pieces. uh, the one, um, I don't know how to characterize it, a morning piece, and then um, three travel pieces. The dog hair. 
The dog is gone. We miss him. When the doorbell rings, no one barks. When we come home late, no one is waiting for us. We still find his white hairs here and there around the house and on our clothes. We pick them up. We should throw them away, but they are all we have left of him. We don't throw them away. We have a wild hope. If only we collect enough of them, we will be able to put the dog back together again. Waiting for takeoff. We sit in the airplane so long on the ground waiting to take off that one woman declares she will now write her novel. And another, in a neighboring seat, says she will be happy to edit it. (laughs) Food is being sold in the aisle, and the passengers, either hungry from waiting or worried that they will not see food again for some time, are eagerly buying it, even food they would not normally eat. For instance, there are candy bars long enough to use as weapons. The steward who is selling the food says he was once attacked by a passenger, though not with a candy bar. Because the plane had been delayed so long, he said, the passenger threw a drink in his face, damaging one eyeball with a piece of ice. The woman next to me in the airplane. The woman next to me has many fast and easy crossword puzzles to do during the flight from a book called Fast and Easy Crosswords. I have only slow and difficult crosswords, or impossible crosswords. She finishes each puzzle and turns the page as we fly at top speed through the air. I stare at one page and don't finish any. The Bad Novel. This dull, difficult novel I have brought with me on my trip I keep trying to read it. I have gone back to it so many times, each time dreading it, and each time finding it no better than the last time, that by now it has become something of an old friend. My old friend, the bad novel. (laughs) In those last three... um, were written as I was um, uh, in the midst of writing uh, what I called dream pieces. They were stories that I wrote, um, I I shaped from either from my dreams or from real-life experiences that were like dreams or from friends' dreams or from friends' experiences that were like dreams. So I got started on this, and once I was started on it, I could... I could, uh, well, I found myself always trying to shape what, whatever was going on into a possible dream, selecting the, the strange parts of it, because, you know, if you do that, if you leave out the ordinary parts or the context and just take the strange parts, you can, you can, uh, you can come up with something that's like a dream. Those didn't quite make it into the dream territory, but one thing that doing this made me do was simply, it was just simply another way of developing short pieces that sometimes were like dreams and sometimes weren't. So I'll read some of the ones that I decided stayed on that line, that side of the line and were like dreams. Because you have to narrate them in a certain style too. 
The Sentence and the Young Man A sentence lies exposed to public view in an open trash can. It is the ungrammatical sentence, who sing? We are watching it from where we stand concealed, perhaps in a shadowed archway. We see a young man walk past the trash can several times, eyeing the sentence curiously. We will stay where we are for fear that at any moment he will reach in quickly and fix it. The piano. We are about to buy a new piano. Our old upright has a crack all the way through its sounding board and other problems. We would like the piano shop to take it and resell it, but they tell us it is too badly damaged and cannot be resold to anyone else. They say it will have to be pushed over a cliff. (laughs) This is how they will do it. Two truck drivers take it to a remote spot with a high elevation. One turns his back and walks away down the lane while the other shoves it over the cliff. (laughs) Dinner. I am still in bed when friends of ours arrive at the house for dinner. My bed is in the kitchen. I get up to see what I can make for them. I find three or four packages of hamburger in the refrigerator, some partly used and some untouched. I think I can put all of the hamburger together and make a meatloaf. This would take an hour, but nothing else occurs to me. I go back to bed for a while to think about it. (laughs) The grandmother. A man has come to my house carrying a very large peach tart. He has also brought with him some other people, including a very old woman who complains about the gravel and is then carried into the house with great difficulty. At the table, the old woman observes to one man by way of conversation that she likes his teeth. Another man keeps shouting in her face, but she is not frightened. She only looks at him balefully. Later, when she is back at home, it is discovered that while she has been eating many cashews from a bowl, she has also eaten her hearing aid. Even though she chewed on it for nearly two hours, she could not reduce it to particles small enough to swallow. At bedtime, she spat it out into the hand of her caregiver and told him this nut was a bad one. (laughs) Awake in the night. I can't go to sleep in this hotel room in this strange city. It is very late, two in the morning, then three, then four. I am lying in the dark. What is the problem? Oh, maybe I am missing him, the person I sleep next to. Then I hear a door shut somewhere nearby. Another guest has come in very late. Now I have the answer. I will go to this person's room and get in bed next to him. (laughs) Then I will be able to go to sleep. At the bank. I take my bag of pennies to the bank and throw them into a machine that will count them. I am asked by a functionary to guess how much my pennies are worth. I guess $3. I am wrong. They amount to $4.24. But since I am within $1.99 of the correct sum, I qualify for a prize. (laughs) Many people nearby in the bank congratulate me warmly. I may choose from among a number of prizes. When I refuse the first and the second and seem likely to refuse the next, 
the anxious teller unlocks a secure vault and shows me the full array, which includes a large plastic piggy bank, a coloring book and crayons, and a small rubber ball. At last, so as not to disappoint her, I choose what I think is the best of them, a handsome frisbee with its own carrying case. So later you can try to guess which of those was true. You might be surprised. <clears throat> the next uh, little group I'd like to read is um, from what I've called Ten Stories from Flaubert. While I was translating Madame Bovary, uh, I read Flaubert's letters from the time that he was working on that novel. To uh, to learn uh, to get to get to know him better, to, to also to learn what he was thinking about the translation, and um, and also to see how he wrote when he was writing, presumably in a more relaxed way. I don't think he really went to the trouble of correcting and then recopying his letters, although he may have done it sometimes. I think most of the time he didn't. Uh, so it was a good way to see how he wrote. Uh, at the same time, I was a little bored with the whole project. I, I, I've been a translator ever since college, and I've always loved it, but I always have that double feeling about it. I'm fascinated. I go very deeply into it. It's very absorbing. But at the same time, I would probably rather be doing my own work, and I'm slightly impatient. So as I read along in the letters, I began finding these little self-contained stories that, that he was telling his correspondent. And uh, some of them were too slight or too, um, too formless to take out, but others were very nicely formed by him, e even though they were, they were not um, stories that he was writing to publish. He, he wouldn't have thought of that, I'm sure. He resisted even doing the, the, the three tales. Apparently did that more for money than, for, than out of desire. Um, but I thought they were very nicely formed stories, so I extracted them. But rather than give them a faithful translation, I felt that I was at liberty to uh, play with them a little. I didn't, I didn't add fictional elements. I wanted this very much to be his material and his language. But I could change the sentences a little. I could cut out a sentence. I could, um, I could combine sentences and the sort of thing I wouldn't do in a translation. So uh, I'll read, uh, I think, five, five of them. And they're all quite short, um, under a page. Uh, the first is called The Cook's Lesson. Today I have learned a great lesson. Our cook was my teacher. She's 25 years old, and she's French. I discovered that she does not know that Louis-Philippe is no longer king of France, and we now have a republic. And yet it has been five years since he left the throne. She said the fact that he is no longer king simply does not interest her in the least. Those were her words. And I think of myself as an intelligent man, but compared to her, I'm an imbecile. <laughs> the visit to the dentist. Last week I went to the dentist thinking he was going to pull my tooth. 
He said it would be better to wait and see if the pain subsided. Well, the pain did not subside. I was in agony and running a fever. So yesterday I went to have it pulled. On my way to see him, I had to cross the old marketplace where they used to execute people not so long ago. I remembered that when I was only six or seven years old, returning home from school one day, I crossed the square after an execution had taken place. The guillotine was there. I saw fresh blood on the paving stones. They were carrying away the basket. Last night I thought about how I had entered the square on my way to the dentist, dreading what was about to happen to me, and how, in the same way, those people condemned to death also used to enter that square dreading what was about to happen to them, though it was worse for them. When I fell asleep, I dreamed about the guillotine. The strange thing was that my little niece, who sleeps downstairs, also dreamed about a guillotine, though I hadn't said anything to her about it. I wonder if thoughts are fluid and flow downward from one person to another within the same house. Pouchet's wife. Tomorrow I will be going into Rouen for a funeral. Madame Pouchet, the wife of a doctor, died the day before yesterday in the street. She was on horseback riding with her husband. She had a stroke and she fell from the horse. I've been told I don't have much compassion for other people, but in this case I am very sad. Pouchet is a good man, though completely deaf and by nature not very cheerful. He doesn't see patients but works in zoology. His wife was a pretty English woman with a pleasant manner. She helped him in his work. She made drawings for him and read his proofs. They went on trips together. She was a real companion. He loved his wife very much and will be devastated by loneliness. Louis lives across the street from them. He happened to see the carriage that brought her home and her son lifting her out. There was a handkerchief over her face. Just as she was being carried like that into the house, feet first, an errand boy came up. He was delivering a large bouquet of flowers she had ordered that morning. Oh, Shakespeare. The funeral. I went to Pouchet's wife's funeral yesterday. As I watched poor Pouchet, who stood there bending and swaying with grief like a stalk of grass in the wind, some fellows near me began talking about their orchards. They were comparing the girths of their young fruit trees. Then a man next to me asked me about the Middle East. He wanted to know whether there were any museums in Egypt. He said, what is the condition of their public libraries? The priest standing over the hole was speaking French, not Latin, because this was a Protestant service. The gentleman beside me approved and went on to make some slighting remarks about Catholicism. Meanwhile, there was poor Pouchet standing forlornly in front of us. We writers may think we invent too much, but reality is worse every time. The Coachman and the Worm. A former servant of ours, a pathetic fellow, is now the driver of a hackney cab. You'll probably remember how he married the daughter of that porter who was awarded a prestigious prize at the same time that his wife was being sentenced to penal servitude for theft, whereas he, the porter, was actually the thief. In any case, this unfortunate man, Tolay, our former servant, has, or thinks he has, a tapeworm inside him. 
He talks about it as though it were a living person who communicates with him and tells him what it wants. And when Tole is talking to you, the word he always refers to this creature inside him. Sometimes Tole has a sudden urge and attributes it to the tapeworm. He wants it, he says. And right away, Tole obeys. Lately, he wanted to eat some fresh white rolls. Another time, he had to have some white wine, though the next day he was outraged because he wasn't given red. The poor man has by now lowered himself in his own eyes to the same level as the tapeworm. They are equals waging a fierce battle for dominance. He said to my sister-in-law lately, that creature has it in for me. It's a battle of wills, you see. He's forcing me to do what he likes. But I'll have my revenge. Only one of us will be left alive. Well, the man is the one who will be left alive, or rather not for long. Because in order to kill the worm and be rid of it, he recently swallowed a bottle of vitriol and is at this very moment dying. What a strange thing it is, the human brain. He would often end his stories that way with an exclamation. The next thing I'm going to read is a sort of a, an alternate biography called Goodbye Louise or Who I Am. And this, um, I started collecting, collecting all the mistakes that were made by, by all and sundry about my name or my address or my profession or my... And then it expanded a little bit into uh, instances where, say, I read a sign on a bus or a billboard that seemed to be speaking directly to me, so that I took it very personally, suddenly. So um, uh, it's just really a listing of all of that, and it's a sort of constantly expanding piece, of course. Goodbye, Louise, or who I am. My name... Linda, Lyinda, Lyidia, Linden, Lida, Lidea, Lidid, Lydia, Liddy, Lydiac, Lisa, Lisa, Louise, Olivia, Clidia, Slidia, Vidia, Videa, Lydia Clark, Lydia David, Lydia Davids, Lydia Davidson, Lydia Daves, Lydia Davis, Lynn Davis, Lindy Davis, Lily Davies, Lydia J. Davis, Ms. Lydia J. Davis, Lyd Davis 8353, Mrs. Mrs. Davis, Mrs. Davies, Mrs. Lydia B. Davis, Mrs. Brooks Davis, Mrs. Ah Lydia Ah Davis, Mr. Davis, Mr. Lydia Davis, Mr. Lydia B. Davis, Monsieur Lydia, Monsieur Davis, Ms. Lydia Dange, Ms. David H. Davis, Professor Lydia Davis, Professor question mark Davis, <coughs> Dear Professor, Professor Tom, Ms. Douglas, Mrs. Cote, Mrs. Ciparelli, Sir, Sir Madam, Admin, Kadat Wafa Obuz Zawul Zaluk Bernu Wawuk, Heather, where I was born, Nueva York.
when I was born, Seiste, October 1947, where I live now, Port Ewan, Port Ewan, Port Ewing, Port Ewin, Port Ellen, Port Evan, Port Avon, Port Owen, Port Huron, Fort Ewan, Poet Ewan, Long Island. <laughs> what I am, postal patron, the contractor, U.S. person, payee, artist, bride, a party of one, GST, HST, the woman in seven, half of Georgia's one o'clock, academic professional, then wife, current resident, valued unit holder, unpaid beneficiary, designee, job seeker, another person sitting out there, a follow-up, a listener whose name begins with A through N, a small supplier, the intended, God's elect, dear, Miss Mercy Mohachi's dearest, Mrs. Clarissa Ann Turner's beloved, casual traveler, very minor player. <laughs> what I have, an existing business relationship with Yakima Wee. What my job is, writer in residence at the University of Chicago. Previous employment, writer of film scripts, writer of subtitles for a Turkish sitcom. What I have written, sketches for a life of Wassily Kandinsky, sketches in the life of Wassily, breaking it down, almost no mercy, Samuel Johnson is indignant, Samuel Johnson is indigent, <laughs> the varieties of disturbance, varieties of disturbance, Varieties of disturbance, <laughs> varieties of disturbacne, <laughs> disturbing variances, airlifting horses, passing gas. <laughs> plot, a, plot description of my novel, Break It Down. It looks like an open and shut case when a London warehouse is burglarized and suspicion points at night watchman Jim Thorpe as an accomplice. Work in progress. Interview with Avital Ronell, Volume 2 of Proust's In Search of Lost Time. Work I have translated, Proust's Way of Swan, Proust's Memory of Things Past, Proust's Auf der Suche nach der Verlorenen Zeit, a poem by Pablo Casals. Other publications, a manual of guitar chords for worship leaders entitled Sunday Morning Salt and Light Choruses. Awards I have won, Lannan Litway Prige, Shrinement Retreat Center Skit Finalist, <laughs> event to which I have been invited, a small party for insiders. What I have been compared to, a cherry, a geyser, the horse's mouth. What my work has been compared to, a walnut, pine boards. Questions I have been asked, do you have any smoke alarms in your home, yes or no? <laughs> what they say I have, a passion for travel, quite an imagination. What they say I have had, a recent postal experience. What they say I could do, 
take home a free bowling ball, adopt a highway, switch to better motorcycle protection, adopt a rest area, adopt a visibility site, attend a free landlord training session, win the free firewood raffle. What I have not used, the honor bar in my hotel room, what they have given me here at the hotel, not a standard room, but a view room. What I might be, in violation for having a dirty sidewalk. What they say counts, my opinion. Friends of mine, engineer Don Shishi, chairman of the tender committee, Miss Ruthie Copeland, female, Edna. Other biographical facts, I am dead. <laughs> so someday the last one will be true. So the last thing I'll read is a very uh, sh a group of very, very short ones that go down from a few lines to three or four lines to one line. And they, they were, that was a, a form that I wouldn't have thought of writing when I was in my, sorry, can't be spontaneous with these microphones, in my 20s because I, uh, when you're young and ambitious, you, you don't think that a one-line work is really adequate. It should be the longer the better, I suppose. Ideally, unless you simply can't, then you write short stories or poems. Um, but then when I was translating Proust, I, I, I became impatient or, I mean, I love doing his very long sentences with his, the many subordinate clauses. But at the same time, I got, I got restless, so I wanted to see how short a piece I could write and began writing these, you know, to see literally how short could a piece be. It has to have a title and it has to have some text, but how little could it be? The cornmeal. This morning, the bowl of hot cooked cornmeal set under a transparent plate and left there has covered the underside of the plate with droplets of condensation. It, too, is taking action in its own little way. The least dramatic work in the English language. <laughs> Can't and won't. I was recently denied a writing prize because they said I was lazy. What they meant by lazy was that I used too many contractions. For instance, I would not write out in full the words cannot and will not, but instead contracted them to can't and won't. Sitting with my little friend. Sitting with my little friend in the sunshine on the front step. I am reading a book by Blanchot, and she is licking her leg. Judgment. Into how small a space the word judgment can be compressed. It must fit inside the brain of a ladybug as she, before my eyes, makes a decision. Bloomington. Now that I've been here for a little while, I can say with confidence that I have never been here before. <laughs> the language of the telephone company. The trouble you reported recently 
is now working properly. <laughs> Housekeeping observation. Under all this dirt, the floor is really very clean. <laughs> PhD. All these years, I thought I had a PhD, but I do not have a PhD. Thank you. Is this? Yes, it is working. If I put it there, is it working? Okay. Um, that was magnificent, and I have some scrawled prompts here for questions I want to ask you. Um, we'll talk as though no one's listening, not even people distant from us in space and time over the internet. Um, and then um, 15 minutes or so from now, we'll open it up and hopefully others will have questions. Um, the piece where you've collected uh, misaddresses of you, um, misidentifications and so on, made me wonder what criteria do you use in your own stories in identifying characters? It seems to me often they don't have names. Um, sometimes, at least in one case I can think of, they're identified by variables x, y, and so on. Um, sometimes we know very little about them. Um, sometimes they seem just like media through which objects circulate a cane or a conversation. So I wondered what you think about identifying your characters? I think um, I've always resisted a little bit giving normal names. I can remember even in, in, in sort of middle school, if I had to write a story, I didn't like naming them with ordinary names. So I would name them with odd sort of words. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure. It's really harder to figure out why you do things than it is for you to figure out why someone else does things. Mm. But um, I think I resist, a, to a certain degree, the artificiality, the necessary necessary artificiality of a short story form mm -hmm. in which names are chosen for characters. Um, I like, I, I think I must have been tending toward, toward making a story less and less artificial, more and more real. Um, because now I, I take a lot from real life anyway. Yeah. And... Um, so Jane and the cane, um, you know, mother and Jane, I don't think I would have thought of writing that story unless the, unless the woman's name had been Jane, mm -hmm. the actual woman. Because if it had been Matilda or something, I, maybe it never would have occurred to me. Because it didn't it was, rhyme? Because it didn't rhyme. It, I mean, it was a funny little interaction anyway. And um, there was such a thing as the plain cane. But I needed Jane to, you know, and then I... Um, and then it's been very hard for me to change names sometimes. Sometimes I've had to just to protect the person or make it a little less, um, less specifically pointed at them. Although most people don't mind being written about, surprisingly. <laughs> whatever, but whatever you say about them. I was reading an interview with Nicholson Baker, whom I like quite a lot, and he was saying something similar, that he takes a lot of material from... Mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. but he does change enough so that it removes it from him. 
and he says, he says, puts up a sort of wall so that the, the reality doesn't come rushing in. Mm -hmm. So it, it is mm -hmm. fictional. And that's important to me, yeah. too. That sort of gets away from your question, probably because well, no, I don't know how to answer it. So. No. Will a story often start for you with some piece of language you're chewing on? I'm thinking of, there's a story in your collected stories called Moan Lawn. And it's really a page of little cognates of those words and recombinations of those words, um, Jane and Cain. Well, I think in the case of Moan Lawn, again, I have to analyze it, you know, afterwards as if I were someone else yeah. because um, it grew out of walking around the neighborhood of the place I was living in, in the utterly boring landscape, you know, that the yards that, that did all have mown lawns and, and sort of the same six pieces of shrubbery or ornamental trees. And it just drove me up the wall. And I'm full of frustrated um, feelings about politics and the state of the world and so on that I don't I don't let loose except to certain long-suffering people in my family <laughs> who get tired of it. And I think what happened was that the wordplay became, became sort of reflected my frustration. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't effectively write about all this and change it by writing about it. So my writing is sort of circling around on itself, mm -hmm. you know. Um, uh -huh. Moan, woman, moan, lawn, lawman, uh, you know, uh, lawn, lawman. I had Mormon in there, but that didn't fit. And then, but moron, moron, yeah. lawn, moron. Yeah. And so I think it was born of frustration, <laughs> yeah. you know. But I couldn't have told you that before. I, I never plan ahead of time, oh, I'm going to write right. a story full of wordplay about moan, lawn because of my frustration. I never know that ahead of time. And then I'm interested in the way um, accidents and inadvertent consequences and unknown causes play out in your stories so that it will turn out that someone is able to provide for their child through a chain of Rube Goldberg-like interactions among 10 other people that result in the final person. Anyway, so this is perhaps the wrong kind of question to ask, but I just wondered, do you think of people as essentially non-unique, non-independent? No, no, I, no, no. I, I wouldn't be able to write if I didn't think mm. of people as, as unique individuals. Mm -hmm. And that's what I battle with when I teach. I don't even want to call it teaching, writing, but, you know, mm -hmm. when I'm present in a workshop at which students are mm -hmm. showing their writings. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> um, the richness of real life yes. is is an amazing source and that includes the the individuality of people and i i'm always trying to give them examples you know you two guys are talking over the back hedge while they're doing their yard work and they're not talking about sports they're talking about cooking you know or or someone who's a, a lady truck driver long distance hauler was telling how uh, when the guys are, when they have to wait for their truck to be filled or something, they'll spend the time knitting. Mm -hmm. You know, things, mm -hmm. things like this, mm -hmm. and there was another one recently, but um, things are always surprising you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, in a, in a, in a book about, uh, a wonderful book called The Artful Sentence uh, by um, Virginia Tuft, I think her name is. It's an amazing book just analyzing sentences from literature. 
grouping them in different categories and talking about the different kinds, but quoting amazing, yes. a, amazing range of literature. She quoted um, a short story that Ronald Reagan wrote in college. <laughs> and it wasn't bad at all, really? that what, what she quoted. So, you know, I would encourage them, say, to have a character reading Ronald Reagan's college fiction, yeah. or fiction writing. Um, in other words, so where did we start? So people, yeah, yeah, I guess I grew up in a family that, that, that had different obsessions. One was about, was language and expressive language. And the, and the other was a lot of people watching and just playing gossip, yeah. you know. Yeah. What do you suppose their relationship is, you know, on the subway? Do you, particularly with these very short stories, I'm wondering what um, state of attention you imagine in your readers um, it's easy for me to think of someone reading a poem as, for example, memorizing it, um, and therefore having what appears on the surface to be a very short experience actually unfold in his imagination over time. Do you think of readers memorizing your, your stories? Do you think of them as rereadable? Um, I don't think of people as memorizing them. I mean. Most people have a faulty memory, and yeah. you know they'll forget a word or two or get it wrong, and that can be fatal in a one-line mm -hmm. piece of writing. Yes, right. But um, no, some people have great memories. Uh, as for rereading, I do hope they can be reread because yeah. if they can't be, like there was a there was a a wonderful poem that probably was part of the inspiration for me for doing short things by Anselm Hollow. It was just one part of, sorry, I don't mean to speak too loudly in this thing, part of a longer poem with sections, I think. And I'm going to misquote it, but it was something like, um, these red mittens um, that I'm knitting, at last I'm, I've finished them, but my life is over. <laughs> and there was something... I could reread that again and again, and it didn't lose its impact for me. It, there was always, and that, that always sort of mystified me. There was always the surprise of the third line, even though I knew the poem. Yeah. Do you like metaphor? You, in your piece, you talk about being compared to a geyser, and I can't remember the other two things. A cherry a and cherry. Um, the horse's mouth. Yes, and your work is compared to a walnut and so on. Mm. Do you find there to be something potentially absurd or miscarrying about metaphor, or imprecise? No, I really love it. I probably am not very good at it. Um, you know, there are things you're just not very good at, and at a certain point you stop even trying. But I just finished reading two books by Mary Carr, um, A Liar's Club and Lit. And by the end of Lit, realized what a master she is at metaphor. It's precisely that. She's brilliant at metaphor. And, and her books are filled with it, filled with very apt metaphors. Like uh, the family comes home. This is her description of a, the day of her birthday. They've been out celebrating her birthday. But because of the kind of family it is, they come home drunk and brawling. And they brawl, their, their fight spills over onto the front lawn, and the children next door are playing night tag. And they start jeering at the family, and the mother finally stamps her foot and yells at them. 
And then she says, they scattered like buckshot. You know, it's this kind of thing, but the, her, the writing is, is just full of powerful metaphors. Yeah, and that's related to a, a talent for drawing images and language also, being able to sort of see exactly that scene. Um, we should maybe start working on other questions um, for Lydia Davis. Yes? Your story that you wrote on um, being sleepless in a hotel. Yeah. Did you write that before or after you translated uh, After. That would be after. Um, sorry to yell again. Can, um, yeah. Now, why would you ask? Oh, you mean falling asleep at night and the, the, the being up through the night? Oh yes, that very that very touching. I think of that a lot when, when he thinks that the that the morning light has come, and, but it's only the last servant going to bed, which is so discouraging if you're ill and you have to wait all night for morning to come. Yeah, that w and that was a sort of half. That was me, and that was a half half um, half awake, you know, thought, and it was a real thought. Um, so instead of censoring the real thought and saying how absurd, I I just I I just accept the thought and make it into a piece. Also, the need to have someone with you while you went to sleep because of the mother. Right, right, his mother. Um, and I heard an interview with someone in, the, in an improv group, and they said their group became they they learned how to be good. This is this comic improv, when they learned that whatever the other person said, because they were improvising, they didn't plan ahead on stage, whatever per the other person said, you accept and went with. And, and, that, and that, I thought that applied to writing a little bit too, or to your thoughts. Okay, you accept it and go forward with it. Questions? translated into Spanish? Yes, yeah. The reason why I said this is because this summer in a newspaper, a very popular newspaper, they were asking writers in Spain which books they have read recently that uh, they like. And amazing, three or four of them mentioned you. Oh, that's very nice. And. Uh, one, one is an oddball, but three or four. <laughs> 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 I mind that we're always looking for what to read. She said, oh, there is this writer, and everyone is, is talking about it. And of course, I hadn't read you then. So immediately, I went into the internet, and, mm -hmm. and uh, I was amazed. Yeah, the, the collected stories, I think, came out fairly recently. In, in Spain, yeah. You are humor and you are, I don't know how, I mean, I, I only enjoy it. I couldn't, I haven't written about you, so I only enjoy your reading. But it's for us, for our sense of humor, it's, it's magnificent. Oh, good. Because of that mix mm. of uh, mm. what you said, mm. fun and, 
and pain, mm. <laughs> which for us, of course, is always fun. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should know this, but have you translated yourself? Uh, into French or any other language? I tried doing a, a rough draft of one piece just to help someone else, uh -huh. you know, to give them the first version, but I can't really go the other direction. I see. What do you think of the French translation of your work? Um, yeah. Um. <laughs> 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 Moving right on. Yeah. Moving right along. Yes, yes. Yeah. Where do you place, if you do, the line between poetry and prose? Mm. The line between poetry and prose. Yeah, I, uh, sorry, this is very, uh, I can't, I must speak in a monotone or very even voice. Um, I see a continuum, so I don't, you know, there, it, it's not, there's not a sharp dividing line, especially in my experience of it in the last 20 years, just because, well, there have always been prose poems that, and, and now there are these very, very short stories and even the very short stories that are, say, two paragraphs long and are not really prose poems, are they're all different. You'd think, well, how different could they all be? But they're all, they're very different, of course, depending on the sensibility of the writer and the language and style. I suppose the, the line I would draw, I mean, it gets very confusing in my own work because some, some of the pieces with broken lines, I really... And they really started or were intended as prose pieces, narrative stories, but I wanted to break the line just so you would read it in that rhythm or that slowly. Whereas others that are in blocks of prose were actually intended to be poems. But I think it depend. It has something to do with uh, the language being more important than, or not, you can't even say that, more important than the story but that the language is, is foremost, um, is very prominent, what you do with it. And also something to do with song. It really does have to do with the origin of poetry in song. So there's one I wrote about traveling with my mother <clears throat> on my back as a, as a container of ashes, which is like meant to be a song to her and for her. So it has it has the it has that spirit behind it rather than a narrative, prose narrative. Um, although you just wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell. So I don't think that answers your question very yeah. much. But but I do see a continuum. You can go right. You can start from, you know, a, a metered and rhymed poem at one end and go to a Chekhov short story at the other. You know. The piece, thanks. Uh, the piece about Louise, I was catching a glimpse of it on the page. Is it? It's um. It's set up. Each item has a separate line. Is that right? Okay. Goodbye, Louise, or Goodbye, who Louise. I am. Right. Sorry. The title comes from a a long conversation I had with a, a nurse, you know, a medical nurse, about various things, and my my situation and very amicable, and then at the end she said, goodbye, Louise. <laughs> it was, I, what I loved was that for that second I was Louise, yeah. you know. Amazing. Uh, Adam? Um, Dan mentioned some of the writers you've been compared with, and I was wondering if you've been inspired at all by Isaac Babel, speaking of how you know, some of his most powerful stories are very, very short, like, like, like first 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I mean, it's always hard to tell, but he definitely was a writer um, that I read and, and read very closely when I was pretty young and admired a lot um, for the compression, you know, that in a page and a half he could, he, he was, and he worked and worked and worked over the, over the drafts of his stories, you know, that, that's, there's this, I'm not good at anecdotes, which is why I'm not a proper fiction writer, I guess, but there was a story that he came to a friend with a, a pile, of a very fat manuscript, and the friend thought, oh, at last he's written something long, because I guess most people then, too, wanted a writer to write something long rather than short. But it just turned out to be 26 drafts of one story. <laughs> and he wanted the friend to decide which draft was the best, I guess. But he, and he is, his prose is very charged and, and, and colorful and literally, that he has color, a lot of color, colors in it and metaphors and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. Can't be translated into English, yeah. right? Did he ever explain to you in detail, like take two paragraphs and tell you the sort of thing that was going on in the Russian that couldn't, that wasn't in the English? No, Right. You, yeah, you're not reading. You're not reading Isaac Babel, but you you like the Isaac Babel you're reading. It may be someone a little bit different, but it would be fascinating to know that. What 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 we were what are we missing? Because I mean, after all, Kafka, the first translation of Kafka was not really as close as it could have been to what Kafka wrote, and it, neither was the first translation of Proust, of course, and yet we've been influenced for, for d decades and generations by the version we did read. So it's always, that's always interesting. Hilton. Hi. You mean reporting, uh, doing a very long piece that would report a great deal of material? If you want, or it could be shorter. It depends on the event. So I'm just saying that it doesn't depend on you. It depends on the event, and you're applying your style of writing to the event. Yeah, like if somebody... Would that, would that be helpful mm -hmm. <laughs> to the issue of blame that keeps coming up, which I don't mind at all, but I'm just saying it would be an interesting... You mean if I, wa if I wanted to be longer, if I wanted to be able Because I could, I actually am very verbose in certain situations. Um, emails can be very verbose, and conversation can be very verbose. Um, uh, uh, so so I, I often puzzle about that relationship between my natural verbosity and my, 
the brevity of the stories. Right. Um, one of the things that happens when you're recording is that you have to repress, and so you can't wait for the event to be over so that you're there as the writer. Um, so I just thought it would be an interesting thing in fragments longer to, to maybe try recording an event and see how you felt about that as a writer. It would it'd be interesting. I mean, I, 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 I'm sort of full up with different things I'm planning to do. That, that so a couple of them that are going to be very long that go into the area of history and completely away from fiction. So all the material is there, and the length is going to be a problem potentially in that I will want to include too much. So maybe I'm sort of doing, I'm not doing precisely what you're talking about, but I'm taking materials already there. Yeah. Because you're, it's hard to describe, but you're reliving history in a new space, so you're recording history. Yeah. Yeah. Selecting and reporting, so what if I didn't select quite as much? I mean, yeah, and also when you're reporting, you have to select Yes, it could go on and on. <laughs> Have you written on very short deadline? I mean, not a book deadline, but it's due next week type pieces? I've, I've written some, um, I guess, nonfiction on yeah. a deadline. Yeah. I, I don't want to write fiction on a deadline yeah. because that's not the way I work. So something comes to me and I write it. I, and I don't go after things. And I was very pretty unhappy writing on yeah. the nonfiction on deadline because of that I I couldn't let it happen naturally. Yes. Marilyn. I was really thinking too when I was reading over the collection um, for last year. <laughs> oh teaching, for February. Yeah. Good I got you all to read it twice and <laughs> teach it twice and yeah. Yes. One of yeah. My favorites yeah. Is the people who are in France who are house sitting. Mm-hmm. Saint Saint Martin. The suspense of the, <clears throat> their house sitting, and the worst possible thing happens to them: the dog runs away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that happens really right at the front of the story. Right. Right. And I kept waiting for that damn dog. <laughs> Something to happen to it. You know, it was going to come back. It was going to be run over. You know, and it was, and so that's why I started thinking about how suspense could play in your stories. That there was kind of something tossed up in the air, and you keep sort of waiting in the way that you would usually wait, because that, that felt like such a nice piece of suspenseful bait. Right, right. It was offered right. to me mm -hmm. as a reader, mm -hmm. and that then you would wait for, to you know, <coughs> a good dog yourself to kind of chomp on it and get it in the air at the same time. But what's funny is it doesn't come down in that way, and I was really mm -hmm. interested in how you think of... Uh, Trying to not do it in that sort of suspenseful way, like what happens next, or this is where it's kind of, you know, where, like 
of mystery novels, but it, it, even in literary novels, there's this kind of feeling of suspense. And it feels like you're doing something with suspense, but it's very interesting and strange. Yeah, and you probably expected something to happen because it, because it was set up in a more traditional way. I mean, yeah, and it was set up near the front. Right, yeah, yeah, right. It was sort of dropped in the, in the yeah. beginning, and it was a fairly long story, and it was about our year there, and okay, so what's going to happen? Where it's <clears throat> like the little one about the cornmeal, you, you knew right away that not much was probably going to happen with that cornmeal. Um, you could still write a story where the dog comes back. <laughs> well, there's another very, and obviously to sort of answer your question, I don't, I don't ever have an agenda. I don't say, well, I'm going to really play with suspense um, in my work. The, the most agenda I would ever have would be something like, okay, the dream pieces, here's what I want to do. I'm going to write pieces that work this way and come out of this. But there's no uh, bigger agenda about, uh, you know, I want to uh, reject conventional s ideas of suspense and see. Yeah, it's more like suspension rather than suspense. <laughs> it feels like a lot of times things are suspended and you're waiting. Yeah, I mean, another another very long one is Helen and Vi, which oh, yeah, goes on for, for you. Do you like that one? Yeah, I, like that I, I always like. It's long. It's very long. <laughs> it's very long, and I wrote a novel, and the novel is long for a story anyway. It's not long for a, a novel, but um, but that one too. People have used the expression "waiting for the other shoe to drop" because um, not much happens. I mean, a lot happens in the sense that. I'm describing the two lives of the two old women, and then the third that erupts now and there. And but but the, but there's no you know it doesn't come together in any kind of surprising way. It's really just a report of the two old women, and that's actually to to follow up on Hilton Hall's question. Also, is another verb. That's a a real verbose piece. I would say that's one where. I got advice from an editor friend, and she said, well, I wouldn't put it in a book at all because it's really not your kind of story. It's not typical of what you do, and if you do put it in, I would cut it. I would cut three-quarters of it out, and I, I couldn't bear to do that. I really loved those two old women, and I wanted... And so I followed the dangerous impulse of being very thorough, you know, just including everything about them that I liked or that interested me. And to heck with suspense, drama, or even interest. So there's some people who are utterly bored by them and there are other people who really like it. You know? So I'm glad you're one of, one of the ones that it's like nice, it. Nice really very suspenseful. And they said, we don't have any idea what this means. It's the cats in the prison recreation. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. I love that. <laughs> again, Something happens there. Something happens, yeah. 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 Right. I confess, I don't know what time it is. One more, one more question. Okay. Um, Yuki. Hi. Um, you mentioned that, some, that you're surprised sometimes by how, by what people will let you write about with their real names. And I was wondering if there are ever moments like that when you write about yourself. Like maybe you're a little embarrassed or about a personal life experience or something like that. Or you're like totally open to sharing this, all the things that happen in your life. <laughs> well, it's as as Nicholson Baker said. I guess I was pleased to read it because it it was so exactly what I feel. 
it, it really isn't always about, you know, everything truthful. You know, the, the main character may be a translator and she may have this thought or that thought. She may have a dog. She, you know, there may be certain things that are similar. But she really isn't me and she really isn't identical to me. Um, it's either that certain things are changed in the story or her voice. That Sometimes the story is entirely true, but the narrator... The narrator and the narrator's voice is not, not from reality. is a made-up character. Um, so that was that was the case with um, the letters from the fourth graders, which was a meticulous analysis of the style and punctuation and spelling and so on of this group of letters. So all the material was true, was was real. The letters were real, but the woman narrating it and doing the analysis, even though I had to do the analysis to write her part. It wasn't me. So there is this protective barrier. And I think if I were tempted to write about stuff that was pretty private and I'd be uncomfortable sharing, then I simply don't. I write it and put it away, perhaps. Um, you know. So uh, I'm very comfortable with it. It doesn't feel like an embarrassment. Lydia, thank you so much. This was terrific. Thank you. Thank you.